We are now in the beginning of what the United Nations has declared to be the Decade on Ecosystem Restoration. And this episode of the Rewilding Earth podcast is sponsored by Biohabitats, a company dedicated to protecting and restoring ecosystems. Biohabitats would like you to enjoy a virtual moment along Beaver Creek, a tributary to Bass Lake, the headwaters of the Chagrin River. Once degraded and ditched for agriculture, the creek is now reconnected to its floodplain, returning to life and providing habitat for many species, like the red-winged blackbird, Agalius phoenicius. Just listen. To learn more about the restoration of Beaver Creek, be sure to check out the link in extra credit at rewilding.org slash pod episode 88. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Kara Nelson is a professor of restoration ecology and the chair of the Department of Ecosystem and Conservation Sciences at the University of Montana's W.A. Frank College of Forestry and Conservation. She's a leader of the restoration thematic group of the IUCN's Commission on Ecosystem Management. Kara has helped develop the guiding principles for the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration, and she contributed to the paper Guiding Principles for Rewilding, which appeared in Conservation Biology last year. Our discussion today centers on what it takes to guide everyone to use the same language and practices in ecosystem management and restoration to tackle the UN decade effectively. A big task to be sure, but one that's filled with purpose and hope. I was just thinking about when I was reading the work you're doing, uh, in a way, looking into the eye of a storm, like the quieter, organized part where people figure out how to deal with the back half of the storm before it hits. It's what it feels like. It feels like people getting organized, people figuring things out. It didn't dawn on me just how big and monumental a task it is to look at laying out principles for ecosystem restoration on a global scale until I read through all of this stuff again. Well, I think your analogy is actually really useful. And there's really two storms. In one sense, the storm is degradation, you know, and the rate and pace of degradation at ecosystems across our planet. The other storm though, more localized to the UN decade is that the storm of opportunities. So we have an opportunity to accomplish more restoration over this decade than in my lifetime, certainly. And in fact, if someone had told me at the start of my career that we would be investing in restoration at the rate we're investing in it now, I never would have believed it. So there's both of those storms. And with the amazing opportunity of the decade, you're right, we're getting ready. You know, I'm thinking it's a hurricane and you're getting your plywood and you're, you know, getting ready um, to both weather the storm, but also take, in this case, I think it's more really about taking advantage 
of this opportunity to maximize the impact of the decade on ecosystem restoration. So how do you approach it? It's really big. Something phenomenal about the decade is that although the decade has only just begun, right, we're, we're just less than one year into the decade, it launched in June of 2021, we have already seen substantial contributions to the global restoration community. And really importantly, the decade has brought together restoration stakeholders to clarify. So the first big contribution, what is and is not ecosystem restoration? What are we talking about? The label restoration has been used in a whole host of ways by different projects, programs, initiatives across the globe. And so it's really created a lot of confusion about what activities are included. You know, is restoration greenwashing or is it really about repairing ecosystems to the condition that they would have been in if they hadn't been degraded? And you know, there's some great examples of this, including forest landscape restoration and some of the global initiatives in forest landscape restoration as they unfolded and pledges were made, there was quite a firestorm of controversy about whether forest landscape restoration is actually a restorative activity. And this is because of concern about afforestation being included as one of the opportunities or management types within forest landscape restoration. So there was a science paper by Joe Veldman and colleagues that was raising concern about restoration leading to actual degradation of key biodiversity hotspots, grasslands within Brazil. So all of this to say, I don't mean to be saying landscape, forest landscape restoration is not a restorative activity. So don't take it that way. My point is that different people were perceiving the term restoration and forest landscape restoration differently. In 2019, a couple of years ago, the Society for Ecological Restoration published I was a co-author on international principles and standards for ecological restoration. And one of the components of those standards that I think is really useful is that restoration was framed as a big tent. Any kind of restorative activity you know, occurs along a continuum and should be recognized as being restorative. But in this restorative continuum, you have at one end ecological restoration, which aims to remove degradation and recover ecosystems to the condition that they would have been in, they would have been in now, not a past ecosystem, if degradation had not occurred while allowing for environmental change. That's one end. The other end of restorative activities is maybe preventing pollution or doing mitigation of threats. And so this is a whole continuum of restorative activities. One of the things that's been amazing about the decade to prepare for the storm is that the decade has embraced this idea that ecosystem restoration includes a broad array of management activities. The entire restorative continuum 
um, advanced by the Society for Ecological Restoration. And that's so important because it allows people to have a common lexicon to talk about restoration. Yes, it includes all these broad activities as restorative, if in fact they have net gain to ecosystems and people. But at the same time, it saves a space for ecological restoration, which is the most ambitious type of repair. As opposed to ecosystem or in, in what relation to ecosystem restoration? Okay, so ecosystem restoration, and this is the important contribution, I think, of the decade, refers to all kinds of restorative activities, a continuum of activities. On the one hand, including reducing societal impacts, right? It's restorative, right? Although it is not recovering the ecosystem to the condition it would have been in if degradation hadn't occurred right? Mm -hmm. But it is a type of restorative activity. So the decade is advancing the concept that that is included in ecosystem restoration, right? On the other end of the gradient is ecological restoration, which is this highest degree of recovery of a native ecosystem. In my view, it's important because there's many different kinds of management activities that are restorative that we wanna promote across the globe. In different places in the landscape, you can achieve different levels of recovery, different goals and objectives you know, are appropriate. For instance, if you're in a production landscape versus if you're in a you know, landscape that has the potential to function as a wildland ecosystem. If we have a very exclusive definition of restoration, right? If we only consider restoration this highest level of recovery, we don't recognize the potential benefits of activities across the board in all kinds of ecosystems, which are urgently needed to achieve sustainable development goals. At the same time, by acknowledging this gradient of activities, we leave space for ecological restoration. We have a definition of ecological restoration as its highest level of recovery. And I'll, I'll say it again, removing degradation and allowing the system to recover to the condition it would have been in if degradation hadn't occurred. That's the definition um, and goal of ecological restoration. Then we can talk about how we can maximize ecological restoration within all of the activities of the decade, instead of having uh, stakeholders confused about what we're talking about when we use that word, restoration. So what about the relationship between rewilding and restoration? In some cases, uh, my mentor, Dave Foreman, has taught me that they are one and the same that we should think of them in the same way. And so then I started reading all the tile, titles of these UN decade you know, principles and standards and everything, which included restoration. I started reading that as rewilding. Am I correct in doing that? Yeah, so there has been such a lively debate about the relationship between rewilding and restoration. And frankly, a lot of confusion about the relationship between the two. And, and I wanna give you an analogy to share my perspective. Let's say I need to go to the airport in Missoula, Montana, where I live. 
I'm going to catch a flight and I'm taking three of my grad students with me. So all four of us need to get to the airport. We all have the same objective. We want to get to the airport. We want to get there on time. We want to get on our flight. In my view, based on my experience, I'm going to take my personal vehicle and I'm going to drive on the highway to get to the airport. One of my grad students may live in a different part of town and may know that there was a crash on the highway earlier that day, and that's not a good route to take. So they're going to take Broadway. The streets, it's gonna be faster, even though there's lights to get to the airport. Another one of my students may have had experience that parking takes a while at the airport. She's gonna call an Uber. And then finally, if you know people in my lab, uh, the last student who's coming on the trip is going to ride their bike. That's just a, a faster way to get to the airport. We want to go to the same place. We have the same objective to our trip, but based on our different experiences and histories, we're going to choose a different way, a different route to get there. That's my analogy of frustration and rewilding. If you look at the principles, and this is in Carver at Al's um, publication in conservation biology, the principles of rewilding. And if you look at the principles for ecological restoration, and to be clear now, I'm talking about the relationship between rewilding and ecological restoration, not ecosystem restoration. So if you look at the public, the 2019 publication by Gan et al uh, in restoration ecology on the principles and standards for ecological restoration, you'll see a lot of similarities. And in fact, the goal of rewilding and the goal of restoration are both expressed as achieving the reference state. And that reference state is actually characterized in a similar way, you know, the intact state. So the reference model in both cases is really the condition that the system would have been in without degradation. So are rewilding and restoration the same? I would argue absolutely not. And it's because of the community of practitioners and scientists who engage in, in my analogy, trying to get on that plane from their different perspectives. So the field of conservation biology and now rewilding large landscape conservation grew from people who think mostly about wildlife and about large landscapes. Whereas the restoration ecology community, both scientists and practitioners, their experience is more rooted in soil science, in vegetation dynamics. And so because of that, I would argue that the approaches that are being used by each of these communities are different, even though the final destination is articulated the same. So, I think this would be an interesting idea to test. One way you could test it is you could have a landscape that needed to be rewilded or needed to be uh, restored using ecological restoration. And you could bring a group of conservation biologists or large landscape folks together and they could develop a plan. You could bring a bunch of restoration ecologists together and have them develop a plan You know, in isolation and you could compare what do these plants look like. I believe they would be different. I also believe 
that a group that included both large landscape conservation rewilders and restoration practitioners would develop the most robust plan because it would both include trophic cascades, the you know, uh, large landscape element, as well as vegetation, soils, and the types of things that restoration practitioners think about. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. From humble beginnings to global conservation phenomenon, the rewilding movement continues to grow and thrive amid the greatest ecological challenges our planet has faced in 65 million years. Here's how you can join us and help return balance to nature. First, go to rewilding.org and subscribe to the Weekly Digest to keep up on the latest rewilding news, interviews, and art. Second, consider donating to support the Rewilding Institute's mission to rewild North America and beyond. And for extra credit, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help spread the word. Thanks so much for your support. I think I didn't engage for a very long time with uh, this work because I saw it as so different. I mean, we're taking different rides to the airport. I don't understand why you would ride your bike when you could or whatever, you know, whatever. (laughs) So I just didn't engage. Do you see that as a problem? Is it being solved? Are people coming together better now than, because you've been here for the whole ride ever since it began. And you've seen this split um, among the rewilding camp and, and restoration camp. Well, I love the question and I loved how you phrased it. You know, going back to my airport analogy, why aren't we all in the same car together? You know, um, that would be efficient. And I do see one major accomplishment of the UN decade is creating a forum to bring people along. And recently, over the last 10 years, including with the launch of the decade, the fact that the opportunities are so great, you know, these really ambitious global targets creates a real incentive for people to get into that same Uber. And I'll give a couple of examples about why rewilders should be paying attention to what's going on within the restoration community. Um, You know, first, these restoration targets represent amazing opportunities. So uh, the bond challenge, which initiated in 2010, initially was a challenge to achieve 150 million hectares of forest restoration across the globe. It was broken out by different countries. The New York Declaration uh, created a challenge 20 by 20 for 20 million hectares by 2020 in Latin America. And so planning is being put in place in order to target which areas would be the focus of these restoration activities. Of course, the large landscape conservation movement has had their initiatives 50 by 50, now 30 by 30. Well, these restoration initiatives are a concrete way to move towards 30 by 30 or 50 by 50. And there are activities that are going on in large scale right now. So it's a missed opportunity for the large landscape conservation community and rewilding community not to engage and say, these are the areas where restoration could really help build our uh, large landscape conservation and connectivity planning. Secondly, 
the restoration community, as I mentioned, really came out of a tradition of um, sort of patch scale projects, you know, in the earliest days, prairie restoration, et cetera, without a lot of landscape context. And so initially in trying to meet these large uh, ambitious initiatives, the restoration community was assembling, you know, guidelines for how we go about prioritizing areas for for restoration, excuse me. Well, the rewilding community and the large landscape conservation community has been working since the 90s on how you do habitat conservation planning, how you prioritize areas for conservation, you know, from in the early days, you know, vision maps all the way to sophisticated applications like circuitscape where you're modeling gene flow across landscapes. And that momentum within the large landscape conservation community and rewilding community needs to be, you know, the restoration community needs to be infused with those ideas um, in order to do state of the art prioritizations. And you feel like that's getting better. You feel like um, the UN decade is is helping. I, I do too. I actually am getting the sense that that is, is helping. We're here today really because of that. And so this has to be, this is a perfect example of this happening, right? Yes. And it's creating a tent for discussion. And, and we've spoken a lot here about definitions for the global community to get onto the same page about these words that we've been using over the last decades, but not understanding uh, because we've been using them in different ways. Um, so the extent to which ecological restoration and rewilders can start to be engaging more and understand how we're using terms, but that applies across the spectrum. And going back to my initial comments about ecosystem restoration and the decade creating a big tent, now, there's a gradient of restorative activities that allows people who work in sustainable agriculture um, to also have a space to connect with their communities about how we can improve what we're doing in production landscapes, how we can do repair and restorative activities in that part of the gradient as well. What are the key challenges for successful implementation of the UN Decade? There are so many things we need to get right in order for a hundred years from now, our kids, kids, kids to say, wow, that was amazing. The investments we made in ecosystem repair versus there are some things that probably should have been thought about a bit more kind of, you know, the perspective we have when we look back a hundred years on how we manage forests and resources. And so a few key things I think we really need to spend time on, and I'm a plant ecologist, so uh, the first one is near and dear to my heart, but in restoring ecosystems, um, including, use the word rewilding, you know, where you're creating habitat for uh, wildlife and aiming to recover the, you know, trophic cascades, oftentimes it starts with plant material and getting plants you know, in the ground. And these plant material choices are gonna have lasting effects 
across all ecosystems. So what do I mean by that? Um, back of the envelope calculations just for the bond challenge, which I previously mentioned, is that we are going to need you know, thousands of tons of seed in order to meet current commitments. And that means we're going to be selecting uh, source populations and moving seed into new areas. And there is a host of needs we have in terms of effectively matching propagule sources to outplanting sites in order to have successful projects, meaning you know, that uh, plants are gonna survive, but also in order to not have adverse effects on remnant populations. So there's a lot to think about there. I could unpack that a little further in terms of we need to know about the spatial scale of local adaptation. We need to know about um, climate and how climate might affect seed sources, et cetera. In the wildlife world, you know, there's similar, of course, similar needs, for instance, knowing um, whether small populations um, represent inbreeding or are a small population that doesn't have any evidence of inbreeding and you might not want to add new genes in because you might then have outbreeding issues. Um, and in translocating animals, you know, how are we gonna manage that in this era of rapid change? So that's one, one big issue. Secondly, you know, we've talked about how there's amazing opportunities right now for restoration, but of course, it's also a, a big challenge. It's really complicated to repair degraded ecosystems. And we need to make sure that we move forward in a way in which we are creating evidence and applying lessons learned to future projects and sharing the knowledge learned. And this is critical because all restoration and rewilding is experimental. Currently, we spend more money on project implementation, of course, than on monitoring. I think we need to have some basic expectations that as we move forward, we are going to make investments in that learning. And it's not even just about the money, because oftentimes there is money for monitoring and monitoring may even be done. However, it may not be effective monitoring that is done in a way that lets you ask and answer questions about treatment effects and then apply those lessons learned. So I think that's a big challenge for the decade as we move through um, establishing large-scale initiatives. Just one more is a going back to the gradient, right? The continuum of restorative activities. And I mentioned the importance of articulating ecological restoration as a specific type of management activity, or I could say rewilding as a specific type of management activity across the gradient. And the importance of that, not just jumbling all restoration together, is that it saves space, right? For a conversation about how much of this big initiative in ecosystem restoration should we devote to this highest possible ecosystem repair? 
And I think we've got some work to do in order to create a framework for how to prioritize, how to do the highest level of recovery possible, regardless of where you are along that gradient. So if you're working in a production landscape, how can you prioritize the types of activities that you're going to do to achieve the highest net gain to ecosystems and people, given the constraints of the landscape that you're working in? Does that make sense? Yes. And and while you're talking, I'm thinking about this. There's a very big difference between what you're talking about, hearing you talking right now, and headline land. So the headlines that you see in the papers about people who who think that they are, and, and in many cases are, trying, doing something. They, they feel the sense of urgency. They're trying, and they're simply saying, we need more trees. We have tree planting programs or something like that. But that's where the public is. Does, right. How do you deal with that on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so I'll recharacterize that. Problem is looking at a narrow objective of your management program. So planting trees or removing a weed, right? Or reducing fire hazard. Those are very narrow goals. But per the principles of ecological restoration, ecosystem restoration, and rewilding, it's in all of those. A basic principle is that your planning should be based on the objective of improving the ecological integrity of the ecosystem that you're working in. So it doesn't start, your objective doesn't start and end with, we need trees. It starts with ecological integrity. So that means, number one, the area to be in the context of restoration must have been degraded. So if you're proposing to plant trees, afforestation in grassland communities, that's not a restorative activity. And then secondly, the activity should improve ecological integrity. So that's composition, structure, function, connection with you know, subsidies from the uh, ecosystem you're working in into the larger landscape, reducing threats from the larger landscape. So if your activity is spraying a weed, whether or not that's in the context of restoration depends on your overall goal. And if that activity spraying a weed results in secondary invasion by a different weed, obviously it's not a restorative activity. So part of this discussion and dialogue and principles and then standards of practice is to back that out. If we're think, we need to take a systems approach if we're trying to engage in this really complicated task of repairing degraded ecosystems. We have to unpack the degradation and then we need to think about ecosystem assembly. We need to think about it in terms of soils and plants. We need to think about it in terms of wildlife and trophic cascades. You just led the development of principles for the UN decade, and you're now working on standards of practice. And you just talked a bit about that. Can you talk about the process that you're using and anything else you'd like to say about why, although I think people are getting a great idea on today's podcast, why principles and standards of practice are very much needed? So this process of developing principles and and now standards of practice for the UN decade has been really interesting. One might ask, 
but we already have principles for rewilding. You know, why do we need another set of principles? And the underlying need is that we wanted a set of principles that applied to all restorative activities across that continuum, everything that would be defined as ecosystem restoration under the decade. So basically defining the underlying principles that would help us describe what is and isn't ecosystem restoration. But of course, people have been working on ideas for decades. So this wasn't about um, my perspective on the and my co-author's perspectives on what the principles should be. Instead, it was meant to represent the ideas from across the globe that people had put forward over the last several decades. And so what we did was we started with a stock taking and we reviewed existing principles for all kinds of management activities across the spectrum. So rewilding ecological restoration on the one hand, and on the other hand, sustainable agriculture. We called those, and then we had an expert forum where we got input on how to synthesize and any kind of gaps, and importantly, across the globe, how to get consistent language. We did from a intensive expert forum, then several other consultations. One of those consultations was through the UN Decade website, and in that consultation, we asked for specific feedback on the language. We also asked individuals who participated to vote on whether they agreed that that principle was important. We asked them to vote if they uh, would accept the language we had provided, if they would accept with modification, or if they would reject. And we got a high degree of buy-in we were at you know, 95% or so for each of the individual uh, principles that we had proposed in terms of acceptance or acceptance with minor modifications. We kept a record of comments and we responded to every single comment we received. And so I'm mentioning this to say that this was really a collaborative co-production of principles for the UN decade starting with all the ideas that had been put forth across these different sort of sectors, ecosystems, and, and types of management activities. We are now embarking on the same process to develop standards of practice. So this is the application of the principles to on-the-ground projects. We did a stock taking of 127 standards of practice for individual types of activities, mangrove restoration, for example, um, ecological restoration, and uh, agriculture fisheries. We put those all together. We have mined practices from each of these, and we are now going into the expert consultation phase, and then we will be going out to a big global consultation through the UN Decade website, and in the end, we will have something that is collaborative and co-produced in terms of these important practices to make sure that the work that's being done for the decade is work that's designed to improve both ecological integrity and human well-being and have net gain 
for biodiversity. Because again, the worst case scenario for this decade would be that in you know, 100 years, our kids, kids, kids are you know, reviewing conservation actions and saying, oh my God, can you believe what they did in uh, mm -hmm. you know, the early part of this century? This was really, really great. And I know people are going to really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to be on Rewilding Earth podcast today. Absolutely. I so appreciate the invitation. It was really fun to chat with you. Biohabitats is proud to sponsor this episode of the Rewilding Earth podcast during the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration. And always, Biohabitats applies the science of ecology to restore degraded ecosystems, conserve habitat, and regenerate the natural systems that sustain all life on Earth. Ecological restoration is positive action that you can take and support today. It's also incredibly rewarding and a lot of fun. Learn how you can get involved in the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration by exploring the links and extra credit at rewilding.org slash pod episode 88.